you are taking your seat, you can grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to walk from the front here towards the back, and we would love to put a copy of God's Word in your hand. So you can just slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure that a copy gets across to you. And you can keep this, a copy of God's Word. We'd love to just bless you with a, a copy of God's Word, and pray that it would be a joy to your soul and an encouragement to your, your heart. We're going to pick back up in Genesis chapter 12, and I think it's really fitting that we just sang that, the song that we did, it, it in many ways kind of encapsulates the message this morning, this afternoon I should say, and I think it, it really helpfully characterizes the life of faith that we're called to live. And I want to ask that question, you know, what does it look like to walk by faith and not by sight? What should we expect in this life of faith? And I think that's an incredibly important question because if we have wrong expectations or we have no expectations, we'll never know for certain if we even have true faith or if we're actually truly walking by faith. We'll never know for certain if our faith is real or if it's fake, if it's true or false, if it's sincere or a sham, or if it's weak or strong. You see, right expectations about the life of faith help us to know. They help us to know for certain that our faith is real, and that's important because we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means by which every one of us can actually have salvation and life with God, where we can have our sins forgiven, where we can be restored back to God. And the truth is that if you don't have real faith, if you don't have biblical faith, saving faith, then that means you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You're, you're actually without God and without hope in this world. That's what the Bible says. But with faith, you have the opposite of that. You have life and hope and you actually have God in this world. You have actually the guarantee that God is with you in this world. He will never leave or forsake you. But not only that, you have all the riches of the world to come ahead of you. And this passage really forms the central episode, if we can call it that, of this book, of the book of Genesis. Because it's here that God begins his program to restore the blessings that were there in the beginning of creation, but were lost in the fall through sin. We saw last week how five times God says to Abraham, I will bless you. Five times because it's countering the five times the word curse is mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 through 11. God is going to reverse the curse. God is going to restore blessing to the world. And he's going to do so through this one individual who God calls out of the world. In many ways, the life of Abraham begins with Abraham against the world. He seems to be the only one that God calls out, but we see quickly that God begins to bless. The promises begin to flourish in the life of Abram. Last week we saw that Abram obeyed the divine call of God 
where God called him to leave by faith, leave his family, leave his relatives, his country, without knowing the place of his destination. And we saw that Abraham believed God's word. God made a promise to him, and these promises can kind of be summed up in three ways. God promised Abram land, you'll take him to a, a land, the land of Canaan. He promised him a seed, a promised child, an offspring, one who would eventually reverse the curse. And he promised him blessing, a blessing that would extend to the nations. And what we see is that Moses, as he begins this section of the book of Genesis, we'll see that he's going to take those aspects of the promise and focus in on them. So we'll see in chapter 12, all the way through the end of chapter 15 and kind of bleeding into 16, he's going to focus predominantly on the land promise. And then from 16, kind of a little bit further into 17 and 18, he's going to focus on the promise of the seed and the birth of his son, and then from there, we're going to see that the blessing is going to become the focus, the blessing that's going to go out to the nations. So here, we see that Abram will be a man of faith, and I want to just draw out from this three expectations of a life of faith. What does a life of faith look like? What should we expect in this life of faith? First, I want you to see this. The expectation number one is that a life of faith is filled with fruit. A life of faith is filled with fruit. Let's pick up at verse four. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west side and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. You can stop there. What we see here is Abram's response to God's promise. Now, God had called Abram, but Abraham must respond in faith. And this is the truth that every one of us needs to embrace. God will call us to himself. God will call us to believe his promises. But every single one of us must respond to the call with faith. Say, so what exactly is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 1, it begins the section in Hebrews that describes the hall of faith. And Abram is a central figure there. Here's how it begins, though. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This isn't just wishful thinking. It's not just mere optimism. Biblical faith, it's, it's as if it's as good as done. Abram's faith, when he hears the promises of God, he's holding on to those promises as if he's already received them. 
It's this deep-seated conviction that what God says he means and what God promises he will fulfill. It's as sure as if he already had it. That's why Abram can leave his country and his family. Because he believes that God is going to do exactly what he says he will do. It's as if when he's walking towards the promised land, it's as if his feet are already firmly planted in the land. And what we see here, listen, that faith produces at least three things. Three things from this particular text. First, listen, it produces the fruit of unquestioned obedience. Unquestioned obedience. I find that absolutely remarkable in this text. God speaks to Abram. Abraham, uh, Abram doesn't question anything. He realizes this is going to be costly. He realizes he's going to stand out in his family, in his community. People are probably going to mock him and scoff at him. And yet he obeys with unquestioned obedience. When God says go... Abram goes. And we see that in verse 4 and 5. And I want you to notice too, we're told that Abram at the time, remember this, he's 75 years old when he departs from Haran. He leaves with his wife and his brother's son Lot. We're going to hear more about him later in Genesis. And they take all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. They set out to go to the land of Canaan True faith, real faith, saving faith is always seen in obedience. You cannot, this is what James talks about, right? If you say you have faith but you have no works, if you have no evidence of obedience, that faith is dead faith. It's not real. It's not legitimate. And again, this is so astounding when you consider Abram's family background and his religious upbringing. One commentator said it like this, he succeeded in rising above the idolatrous notions of his moon-worshiping environment and recognized the voice of the Lord, Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So that without argument or questioning on his part, we read of his obedience. I love that. We, uh, in my house, you know, my youngest son went through this phase for a while where uh, he would ask us questions, thinking that we knew. And, 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 then, and then we would tell him the answer. He would say, you know, Dad, you know, tell me about this. So I would give him an answer. And he would, he would look at me questioningly and say, really? I would say, yeah, Really? And he would look back at me a second time. This happened every time he asked a question. And he would say, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, pretty darn. And we have this tendency, don't we, to question? It's kind of inherent in human nature. And there's a part of our questioning that's really good. It's really healthy. It's one of the ways we learn and one of the ways we grow. But listen, when it comes to the word of God and when it comes to the, to the direct clear, authoritative word of God that comes to bear on our lives. Listen, the response of any person of faith must be to hear and to respond with immediate, unquestioned obedience. That's exactly what Abram does. And I want to just maybe 
camp there for just a second, and I want to ask you, listen, when God speaks to you through his word, whether it's here on a Sunday where you're hearing the word of God preached, or whether it's you opening the word of God in your personal devotional time, and God speaks into your life, the convicting power of the word penetrates your heart, where sin is exposed, where some area of your life doesn't line up with what God says must be present in your life, where where some part of your life does not reflect or honor God himself. Are you a person who is quick to repent and say, God, I will obey? Or, listen, or are you quick to gloss over God's word when it convicts? Are you quick to dismiss God's word when it convicts? Are are you quick, listen, to be sitting under God's word, to hear the conviction of God's word, and to think immediately, well, that must be for someone else? Man, I'm glad my wife's here. She really needed to hear that. Or, or listen, is your disposition before God, listen, is your, your disposition before God one of this, God, I want you to speak to me. I want to hear from you. I want my life to be changed by you. I want my life to be conformed to your word, God. True faith is seen in this unquestioned obedience to God's word. Secondly, I want you to notice this. It's seen in the fruit of unashamed proclamation. I will tell. God speaks, I will go. God speaks, I will tell. I want you to notice here that he's, he's leaving um, Haran. He's left Ur, he's left Haran. And I want you to notice that he's bringing with him an entourage. Did you catch that? He's got, yes, his family and he's got his nephew Lot, but he's got all these people. The text tells us here that he acquired. And I want you to ask the question, well, what exactly is going, how did he acquire all of these individuals? Most commentators draw attention to the fact that these aren't slaves that Abram's bringing with him. They point out, in line with rabbinic interpretation, that this more than likely refers to Abram making proselytes. In other words, you can, you can picture it. Here God has shown up to Abram. He's called them out of Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's called them out of Haran to go to the promised land, and Abram can't keep his mouth shut about it. It's like everywhere he goes, he sees these people worshiping the moon gods. He's in Haran and Ur, and all he's doing is he's kind of setting up camp around these these pagan worship centers, and he's telling people about Yahweh, the God who called him. Abram has been boldly telling his story and proclaiming his faith in the Lord. And, And I think, by the way, we need to see this. I think this is driven more by delight than it is by duty. I want you to notice that he has not been told, go and share your faith. He can't help but share his faith. You see the difference? And I'm not opposed. Listen, we are commanded to share our faith. We're commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. But let's be clear. The greatest motivation to sharing our faith is not duty, it's delight. And when we recognize what God has done for us, what God has called us out of, who God has made us, where he's leading us, this should thrill our hearts and our souls. And we ought to be, we ought to be the most joyful people in the world, amen? Why do we look so grumpy all the time then? I know, life is hard. But you know, it's, it's, this is a, 
potent reminder for us. Yes, life is hard. Yes, there's many struggles and trials and difficulties, much hardship and pain. But man, when we just stop and think that all God has done for us in calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we should have enough joy in our hearts to fill us for all eternity. And can I just, can I just say to you, listen, you have a story worth sharing if you're in Christ today. You have a God worth proclaiming if you're in Christ today. I hope you believe that. You're like, well, my story's not too significant. I didn't have this huge, crazy life of sin like Abram. I was brought up in a Christian home. Yeah, you were brought up in a Christian home. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were without hope and without God in the world. And God in his grace opened your eyes so you could see the beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's what you get to tell people. I serve the God who calls people out of darkness into light. I serve the God who can take a dead, lost, hopeless sinner and to make him a alive, joyful follower of Christ. We, we need our, our proclamation of our faith, that unashamed proclamation to be driven more by delight than by duty, more by awe than by obligation. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and this side of the cross, and Abraham's faith was pointing towards this in Christ alone. We believe in a Savior who lived and died and rose victoriously from the grave. We believe that we are a people who are forgiven and set free, that in Christ there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for us. We believe this, and I hope that thrills your soul today. So the question is this, who are you telling about this? Where's your entourage? Faith produces the fruit of unashamed proclamation. Finally, we see that fruit, we see it produces the fruit of unwavering worship. I will serve. We see this in, in verses 5 and following and kind of halfway through verse 5. It says, when they came to the land of Canaan, notice this verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. So here Abraham gets to the land, and, and then God kind of takes him on a tour through the land. That's what you're supposed to envision here. And he stops off at specific geographical parts or points in the land, and those geographical points, I know we kind of gloss over them, but they're hugely significant. He travels through the land from end to end. That's the, the, the vision here we're being given. And you say, well, why, why does God take him on this tour? Here's what's happening. He is symbolically taking possession of the land, okay? He is not fully taking possession of it, but he is symbolically taking possession of it. it this is a, the demonstration or the proof of his faith. He believes what God said. He is going to get this land. He and his offsprings after him, after him for an eternal, everlasting possession. And here's what he does. As he travels through the land, he lingers at holy places and he builds altars. 
Now, we know, we know that altars, they symbolize, especially in the Jewish worldview, they symbolize worship. But in the ancient worldview, this is how people worshiped. They built altars, and the implication here is that, that uh, Abram would have sacrificed something on the altar and almost almost for sure, it would have been a whole burnt offering. In other words, it was the fullest act of worship, the fullest display of surrender, the fullest aspect of your commitment. God, you deserve it all. And here, he stops in this place called Shechem. And if you know your Old Testament... Or if you've looked at a map, here's what you would find out. That Shechem is the geographical center of the promised land. And Shechem will later become known as the place of decision. It's, it's this kind of plain between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And this is the place where Moses, or excuse me, Joshua, will rally the people of God later in their history while they're in the land. And he'll hold their feet to the fire, to, you know, metaphorically speaking. And he'll say, he'll say, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, worship is all about who you serve. This is why Paul can say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that our, our spiritual worship is the way we live our lives. We lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. It's because our worship is a declaration of our surrender to the king, to, to Yahweh, the God above all gods, the name Jesus above all other names. He goes to, to Shechem, and, and there he goes to the Oak of Moreh. Again, if, if you know kind of the ancient worldview or the, the pagan religions, here's one of the things that you'd, you'd find very strange here, because this is intended to strike a bit of an ominous note. Moreh means teacher or oracle giver. You see, this was the place where the Canaanites assembled to hear the oracles that the soothsayers received from the rustling of the leaves. And you see, so you see what's happening? He's not just going to this place of decision. He's going to one of the primary places of Canaanite worship, and he's like, he's kicking over their altar. He said, get, get, get your God out of the way. I'm building an altar for the one true God. But I want you to notice that the text actually, it, it makes a point of saying that as Abram passed the land, look at verse 6, right in the middle, notice what it says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Again, this is not insignificant. You see, what's, what's happening here is that Moses is writing to a group of people who are about to go into the promised land. And what he's telling them is that, listen, your faith is going to come up against some pretty significant obstacles. Your faith, this life of faith that you have, it's going to face some pretty significant opposition. Have you figured that out yet, Christian? 
And do you remember what happened to the generation that wandered through the wilderness, that, that Moses had led through the wilderness? Do you remember what happened when they, when they first sent spies into the land that God had promised them? Do you remember what the spies came back saying, except for Joshua and Caleb? Do you remember what they came back and said? These, these Canaanites, like they're, they're huge. We were like grasshoppers in their presence. You know what they're saying? There's no way we can go in there and take this land. They're struck with fear. The obstacle of these giants looks too great. Do you remember? You just think, okay. Here's the new generation. They're about to cross over the Jordan River and go take possession of the land. What's the first major city they come to? Jericho. Do you remember the walls that stood in front of them? That they're like, there's, there's no way, there's no way we're going to be able to take this. These walls are too big. They're too thick. And you see what, what's happening here is this. God is reminding his people, listen, you're going to face obstacles in this life. They're going to seem too big. They're going to seem too great. By the way, Sarah is barren. Abram's 75. How is God going to fill his promises? The obstacles, there's too many. God's like, don't you understand? I'm the God who crushes the walls. I'm the God who wipes out giants. I'm the God who overcomes the dead, barren womb and brings life where there is none. I'm the God who overcomes and defies age. I'm the God who overcomes every obstacle to your faith. That's why you can put your faith in me. And it's there, right there in the heart of this pagan land that the text tells us God actually appears to Abram again and he speaks to him and reaffirms this promise. Look at what he says. This land, I'm giving this land to you. This land where false gods are worshipped, where they're served, it will be the land where my people dwell and I will dwell with them, where I will be their God and they will be my people And so he builds an altar to the Lord, an outpost of worship, a declaration of his faith. I believe it. God said it. I believe it. And it's more than that. This altar, it's a symbol of God's ownership of the land. It's a declaration of Yahweh's supremacy and authority over the nations and over the gods of this world. There's no God greater than our God. It's a declaration that this world is God's world and he will be worshipped here. It's this, this, this faith and this belief that one day, one day, all the world will shout the glory of the Lord God Almighty. And in Bethel, he goes and he does the same thing there. And he builds an altar. And you notice the phrase that's said there? Check this out. This is amazing. He built an altar, this is verse 8, to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Do you remember hearing that phrase earlier on in the book of Genesis? All the way back in chapter 4, verse 26, we are told, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
And he's showing this unified nature to the people of God, the, 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 the normal kind of aspect of our faith that transcends time and geography that characterizes the people of God. We are the people who call upon the name of the Lord. When we looked at it there in, in that text in chapter 4, we noticed that this was sing, signifying that they were worshiping God. They were proclaiming him and praising him. And you see, that's the indication here in this text. Here's Abram with all of his entourage. He builds this altar in order to distinguish his worship from Canaanite worship. And he proclaims the person and the nature of God. See, what exactly is he proclaiming about God? It's interesting, the same word, the call upon the name, is the same word used in Exodus chapter 34. You know that famous passage where, where, where Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. And then it says God showed up, and guess what God does? God calls his own name. God, the same word, proclaims his own name. What does he say? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, there it is, the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses, I love this, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. There it is. With his entourage, Abram had a church service. He did this. He proclaimed who this Yahweh God is. They called upon, they prayed to him, and they together collectively praised him with these altars. Listen, he is declaring that he serves Yahweh, and he will worship Yahweh. Our worship is always about recognizing and proclaiming who our God is and what he does. And you see, part of the key to understanding what's going on and how this applies to you and I is to see how Abram actually understood the promise of this land. And the New Testament actually helps to illuminate what Abram believed. It shows us that Abram's obedience, his proclamation, and his worship, they flowed from Abram's faith. In fact, Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 8 says that he, he went out not knowing where he was going, that he sojourned in the land. And at some point, listen, at some point in Abram's life, he realized the significance of what God was doing and what God was going to do. He realized that the promise was going to transcend him. It was going to outlive him. It was going to extend far beyond him. See, what exactly did Abram believe about God's promise of the land? Well, look at what Paul writes in Romans 4, verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, the promise was not simply about this small geographical piece of land in the Middle East. It had, it had worldwide implications. It was pointing towards one day the totality of the world. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, listen to what it says. For the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be heir, sorry, that's Romans again. Uh, these all died in faith not having received the things promised. This is talking about Abram and his, his offspring. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking, look at this, a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land, the physical land alone, listen, from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. There, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I want you to think of it like this. In World War II, uh, the troops stormed the beaches of Normandy. But what was their objective when they got to the beach? Was it just so that they could take the beach? No, the, the beach would become ground zero from which they would reclaim all of Europe. And in many ways, the land promise is intended to function the same way in our thinking, that the land is a beachhead by which God's people will begin to extend God's rule across the earth. Like, like Abraham, we are looking for a better land, aren't we? Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Again, notice this, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, I think it's interesting, as, as Abram sets up these little altars across the land and he declares, this is God's land. I think there's a parallel in the New Testament for the church of Jesus Christ. Do, do you realize that the church is an outpost for the kingdom of God? Do you realize what we're doing here? We're, we're like an embassy, right? We're, we're in the midst of a foreign land, aren't we? But the church is like this piece of land here. We're like, this is kingdom land. This is kingdom soil in a foreign land, and what we're saying, listen, as, as churches dot the, the landscape of our country and our world, do you realize what we're communicating? We are communicating that one day, one day God will rule this world from sea to sea. All this world will be under the rule and reign of King Jesus. No more little outposts, no more little altars, no more little churches. The whole earth will be the temple of the living God. The life of faith demands that, listen, we, we look at our life here and now as pilgrims and sojourners in this world. Bearing the fruit of unquestioned obedience and unashamed proclamation and unwavering worship. Let me just encourage you, church. Listen, stay at these fundamentals of the faith. 
Make these true in your life. Listen, you don't have to complicate the Christian life. You don't have to complicate life in general. Just stick to the basics. Do the fundamentals and watch how God strengthens you. Because the reality is each one of us is prone to wander, aren't we? Our faith can slide, we can slip, we can stumble. What's true for us is true for Abram. I want you to see this next, expectation number two. A life of faith is fraught with failure. And I want you to hear this really clearly. The greatest obstacle you face in your life is not outside you, it's inside you. The greatest obstacle to your faith is your own sin. And true faith does not mean perfect faith. I I think we need to remember that. Real faith encounters real struggles, real obstacles. We have real stumbles. And here we need to see uh, two things just to note as we dive into this. The first thing is is this text here from verse 10, kind of to 13.1. It's a preview of the Exodus event, Israel's exodus from Egypt. So you're going to see, you're going to hear some significant parallels as we march through this text. But the second thing I want you to just pay close attention to is this. The famine in this land that is about to come in just a moment is designed to test Abram. And the test showed him to be weak in his faith, at least at this moment of his life. Faith is regularly followed by famine. Notice what it says. Now, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. Think about for a moment how Jacob ended up sending his sons down to Egypt. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Faith is regularly followed by famine. And faith is always tested. This is the design of God. Why do you think James, when he writes, the very first thing he says out the gates is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, trials of all kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God has a designed purpose in the seasons of famine in your life. And listen, God will often bring hard circumstances into our lives in order to test and reveal the strength of our faith. The famine in this context had created this fear of starvation and Abram then, he instinctively moves to dispel his own fears. But I want you to notice, it's what's not said that is actually the most important part of this part of the story. There is no reference to Abram seeking the will of God. Did you catch that? 
He's just been given the promises of God. He's been told to trust God. And then all of a sudden, hard times hit. And what does he do? He abandons God. He doesn't seek God. And instead, he devises his own plan without any reference to God at all. And the implication in this text, listen, is that if he had solicited God's will, if he had went to God first, the story would have ended quite differently. Abraham's going to Egypt, one commentator says, his going to Egypt was not so much an intentional sin as it was a reflexive turn to his own devices. He did not deny God, he simply forgot him. He forgot, he says, how great God is. I mean, man, can we relate to that? I mean, isn't it staggering how fast we can move from faith to fear? How quickly we can move in our spiritual lives from steadfastness right into sin? I mean, we can, we can, we can be in the heights of worship with God's people and then walk out to the car and scream at our kids. I think the Apostle Paul understood this wrestling match in his own heart well. That's why he wrote 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. He says, therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I mean, what what an important lesson for us. I mean, when you're faced with a trial, let me just ask you, what's your first reaction? When you're faced with difficult circumstances, hardship, Is your first reaction to try to craft a plan to get yourself out of the pain, or is it to first run to God? The best plans always begin by going to God first. Have you figured that out yet in the Christian life? The road to sin is always paved with self-reliance. What are you facing today? What are you facing maybe right now in this moment that you have not brought to God? What are you facing right now that you you have simply tried to muscle your way through? You know, you've bootstrapped it through. You've, You've created a plan. You think you can chart a course forward, but you have left God out of the picture. You've pushed him to the side and you said, God, I've got this one figured out. Or maybe you were in a season or God had you in a season where he was trying to keep you under hold you in the midst of the trial. And in your own designs, you've tried to break free from the trial and you can't seem to get free because God is saying, don't you understand? You're still relying upon yourself and you're not running first to me. You're not depending upon me. You're depending upon you. And listen, sometimes life is really, really hard Sometimes we look out and we see the army in front of us and it seems too great, it seems too big. And sometimes our prayer has to be, you know, like Second Chronicles 20 verse 12, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we keep our eyes there. 
why do you think Colossians 3, you know, that reminder, set your, set your mind on things above, not on things below. Where Christ is seated in the heaven. You, your citizenship is in heaven. You've got to be able to look above your circumstances to the one who is sovereign in control of your circumstances. And if you go to him, listen, your circumstances may not get, in a human way, humanly speaking, better, or, or they may not go the way you want, but God will give you everything you need. He will sustain you in the midst of the trial. He will strengthen you in the midst of the trial. He will actually increase your faith in the midst of the trial. And if you're decreasing in faith and decreasing in faithfulness in the midst of the trial, can I suggest to you that that's because you're not running to God, you're not relying upon God, you're not resting in God. And God is saying, return back to me. One of the reasons that I love the Bible is that it doesn't whitewash the saints. You know, all these other ancient books, oftentimes they present the, you know, the key figures, the human figures, as if they're perfect, as if they're untouchable. But the Bible just simply refuses to do that. It presents all of these heroes of the faith as real people with real problems and rare, really real sin. And what we see in Abraham is no exception. I mean, what he does here is so stupid. I mean, he, he's an absolute fool in this moment. One commentator says, this man of God, being a man still, appears in a new light, or rather in the old light, the old light, or the light, excuse me, of his old nature. How easy it is to slip back into our old nature. And so what does he do? He concocts this stupid plan. He's afraid that the Egyptians will see his wife Sarai and they'll see that she's beautiful and they'll try to take her from him. I mean, what a, by the way, what a horrific reality in the ancient world. I don't know if you think your life is pretty bad, but this is pretty bad. And by the way, he's not wrong. <laughs> That's the crazy part. Sometimes our, our fears are illegitimate, right? It's just things we perceive. Sometimes they're very real. And, and he's right. that They would have taken his wife and killed him. And so he says, hey, I've got this brilliant idea. Wife, tell them you're my sister. <laughs> wink, wink. Which is actually kind of true. They're, they're half brother and sister. I don't know if you realize that. So it's kind of not a full lie. But a half-truth is a whole lie, right? He, he's willingly holding back this information, and he's pretending to be the brother, because in the ancient world, the next of kin would have been able to negotiate the marriage. And so they'll come to him, and can you just imagine how this all played out, right? The princes of Pharaoh come and say, Pharaoh wants this woman. And he's like, well, I guess you can take my sister. How much are you willing to give me? Guys, if you pull this stunt in your marriage, <laughs> I promise you, will not go well. <sighs> this is staggering, but let's just address the real elephant in the room. Sarai is 65 years old. And the implication of this text is not, not that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. She is objectively beautiful by every measurable standard. She's 65, and she's still the talk of the town. I don't know what she did when they got into the land of Canaan, but I have a feeling she went straight to the Dead Sea and did one of those mud baths. I've been there. It does wonders. 
I'm like, man, 65, and everybody's like, man, that woman is beautiful. Good for Sarai, by the way. Good for Abram. Like, way to go. Like, 60's the new 30. But by the way, that's actually true. Remember at this time, their lifespan is essentially double our lifespan. So really, their 65 is more like the equivalent in the aging process, this is what it, what it would seem like, to our 30s or 40s. So she is still, I mean, she's, she's, not, she's not young, but she's not super old, and she's still, she's just, she's got it together. And everybody thinks she's beautiful. And, and by the way, this is, not the, this is not the only time this is going to happen, okay? Genesis 20. And, and by the way, his, his son's going to do it. This is, this is not the first episode. This is just, excuse me, the first episode of Sister Wives. This is going to happen at least two more times. And, and by the way, that's, that's a great reminder that sometimes old sins die hard. Sometimes we can struggle with the same sins for our whole lives. And sometimes we can be old and full of faith. And in an instant, we can be old and full of fear. I mean, how sad is this? I mean, this conversation, you, you got to hear in this that this is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Abram is saying to his wife, why don't you do this to protect me? Can you hear that? You be a shield for me, isn't this? This is amazing because this is the exact opposite of what a husband's role is in marriage. Abram's supposed to be the protector and the provider. He's supposed to be a shield for his wife, especially in the ancient world where, where it's, it's honestly, it's incredibly hard for men and women, but particularly for women. And so he's like, he's so fearful. He's willing, this is, and this is, you gotta hear the truth of this. He's, he's, he's in effect pimping out his wife. That's not a joke, that's real. He is giving his wife over to Pharaoh to be a part of her harem and he is receiving compensation for it. Moses wants you to hear this about Abram. This is as bad as it could possibly be. And can you hear the echoes of the fall here? Here is another man like the first man who failed to protect his wife failed to care for her. Abram's scheme is born out of fear and it turns out badly and God promises to him, here's, here's why this is significant because in this moment it appears that God's promises to Abram are now put in jeopardy. So this is not just about what he does to his wife. Do you see what his fear is doing? It could appear now that God's promise, where's his wife? With another man. How's God going to fulfill his promise of offspring? How's God going to accomplish this plan of redemption? He puts his family in a position that he actually cannot resolve. And I think this is helpful for us to consider because the life of faith, our lives of faith are so often fraught with failure. Your life is and so is mine. And it's possible to have great faith in this life. And it's also possible to have great failure in this life. And if you live your life with the expectation that your faith rises and falls, listen, on your own personal faithfulness, you will live in perpetual despair and discouragement. 
If your security is found in your ability to be faithful, you need to hear this, church. If your joy is found in your ability and security is found in your ability to be faithful to God, you will live in insecurity without any assurance and without any confidence. But praise God that our failures do not remove our faith. Praise God that our faith is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but upon his, amen? Expectation number three, a life of faith is fixed with faithfulness. And I mean that in two senses. It's fixed fully and finally, but it is fixed. It is secure. And notice verse 17. Do you see what has to happen here? Abraham can't resolve this. Who needs to step in? Who needs to intervene? But the Lord. What does he do? The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Do those words sound familiar? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. And the text, it it actually is a lot more aggressive than the English reads. He's like, here's your wife. Take her. Get out of here. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram, verse, chapter 13, verse 1, went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. I promise, can you just picture the reunion between Abram and Sarah when they finally you know, looked at each other in the eyes? That was a long walk back to Bethel. I just, you guys see how awesome this is. The Lord intervenes. What does he do? He inflicts Pharaoh with great plagues. Same word used in the Exodus. And the indication here is that it's, it's severe, but Sarai is protected in the midst of it. And he commands him to get up, go out of Egypt, back to the promised land. And the point, listen, the point of this here is that God is making clear that the fulfillment of his promises depend not on the strength of our faith or our faithfulness, but upon the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh God. And let's be clear, our only hope in life and death is that God is faithful even when, especially when we are unfaithful, amen? If the promises of God were dependent upon our perfect faithfulness, we would get nothing. If we could lose our salvation because of our sin, we would. But our confident expectation is that our life, listen, of fickle faith is fixed, is held fast by his unwavering faithfulness. He will hold us fast. And it is then the faithfulness of our God that fuels our faith. Do you see how this works? We see the weakness of our faith and we look at how faithful God is, even still. And what does that do? That fills us with faith. Our God is awesome. Our God will not leave us or forsake us. Even when we have left and forsaken him, our God will cling to us even when we refuse to cling to him. 
We cannot miss the fact that the way that this story is told shows this deliberate parallel with the exodus of Israel. Did you catch all those parallels? Listen, there is famine in the land. They went down to sojourn in Egypt. There was an attempt to kill all or to kill the males and save the females. God plagued Egypt. They took spoils from Egypt. They were expelled from Egypt and they escaped to the Negev. Why does, why does Moses do this? Two things he's doing here. Listen, this story is supposed to be a source of comfort and encouragement to the Israelites. And it should be for us as well. This becomes a kind of lens through which the people of God can view their life on this earth. A reminder that, that, that this world is not our home and that, that we have a God who operates in these ways, that we're going to constantly be feeling like exiles, that we're going to be sojourning, and that our God is the one who must ultimately save us. It, it's a prophetic paradigm that ultimately, listen, is pointing us towards how God is going to save his people from the greatest form of slavery that all human beings experience, slavery to sin. It's going to point us to Jesus. Where God calls his son out of Egypt. It's going to point us to Jesus who provides the great exodus for God's people. It's going to constantly remind us, listen, that though we are great sinners whose faith is so often fraught with failure, we serve Yahweh, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. You, listen, if you haven't figured this out, you are not perfect. You are in desperate need of a Savior, and only He can deliver. And I just find this so encouraging. Maybe some of you need this today. Isn't it amazing that a man with such great sin can also be praised as a man with such great faith? That's grace. It's grace. And we, like Abram, we stumble when trouble comes because we forget God. We forget who he is and what he does. But praise be to God that it is not the strength of our faith that saves. It is the substance of our faith. Praise be to God. It is not the perfection of our faith that saves, but the person of our faith. Abram was a great man of faith, but Christ is the perfect man of faith. Abram left his home and family in Ur to go to an unknown land, but Christ left heaven in obedience to the Father's call. Abram is known for both his great faith and his great failure. Jesus' life was one of faultless faith and perfect obedience. His life was all in faith, and by faith, from beginning to end, Jesus did not stumble when trials came. He, his faith never wavered. He did not look to his own devices, but only to God. He was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. He, he was the great Passover lamb of the Exodus, through whom all God's people are set free by faith in him. He died, he rose, so that we could experience that Exodus. Out of Egypt, God would call his son. And through his son, listen, God will call many sons to glory. If you have faith in Christ today, listen to this. By the power of his Holy Spirit, you are in Christ, the man of faith. He not only saves you, but he empowers you to live a life of faith. 
The very one to whom Abram's faith pointed, the very one to whom the promises pointed and who fulfilled the promise is the one who enables us to live by faith. Jesus is the beginning and end of faith. The one who rescues his people from slavery to sin, who takes us out of Egypt, who leads us through the wilderness and will by his grace take us all the way home to the promised land. Amen? This is the great expectation of a life of faith. We are saved by faith only because of a God of faithfulness. This is our God. This is who he is. This is what he does. God, we praise you because you are the God who saves. You are faithful to the very end. God, we thank you that as we look at our lives, we can relate to Abram. We we can say in one breath that we have faith. We believe in you. We believe in all of your good promises. We can walk by faith and not by sight. And yet, God, in in just a, a moment, we can slip and stumble and we can walk by fear. We can experience failures and even great sin. But we can be assured that you are faithful to the very end. You are our God. You are the God who saves. And God, I pray now that you would strengthen our faith. God, would you give faith to some in this place? And God, would you point us to your faithfulness? God, we love you. We praise you. And together now, we will stand and we will proclaim you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.